within a week, uh, the the main Confederate newspaper, which was a very strong newspaper in the city, uh, read a wrote an editorial about him being the devil incarnate or the devil himself. Uh, the next Sunday night, there was a mob attack on Second Baptist Church with a brick thrown through a window and a mob showing up at the back of the church. Uh, and um, his life was threatened many times. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF Life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net slash seminary dash resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Stephen D. Jones. He's the pastor of First Baptist Church of Kansas City, Missouri. And what we're going to really be talking about the most is his new book, Galusha, Crisis and Courage in a Civil War Pastor. This is a novel written in the first person about Galusha Anderson, who was a Baptist pastor in St. Louis, Missouri during the Civil War. And I'm not going to spoil the story, so I'll let Stephen tell a little bit in the episode. But I think you'll find this to be an interesting conversation, not only about a fascinating and underappreciated historical figure, but also with some really important implications today of how do we balance the pastoral, caring ministry with the prophetic, telling the truth ministry. Sometimes, like during the Civil War, during the time of slavery, those two roles clash with each other. Glusha Anderson experienced and ultimately moved into that tension. So here's my conversation with Stephen D. Jones on Galusha, Crisis and Courage in a Civil War Pastor. All right, well, Stephen, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you, Brian. It's my joy to be here with you. We're going to be talking about your book in a moment, but first of all, you know, we're having this conversation looking at each other on a computer screen like pretty much all of life has been for the past year. And so how have you been doing during this pandemic? Uh, I hope that you and your loved ones have been able to stay safe and healthy. We have stayed uh, healthy and safe. Uh, Every member of my family, my my children are young adults, but they are also... um, almost all now double vaccinated as we have been for about a month. And um, that, that is a very liberating moment uh, to finally, you know, get the vaccinations over and and behind us and all of that. But, you know, I've been a pastor 49 years this, uh, this June. And uh, uh, there's a learning curve to this. I don't think any of us were prepared for. In fact, it might be easier for younger pastors than it is older pastors. You know, I just, to me, one of the joys of being a pastor is to be with people in their homes and in the hospital room and 
all those kinds of things in crisis in their life. And it's, it's just a steep learning curve, figure out how to do that when you can't be face to face and you're dealing with the same thing, uh, you know, with your doing But pastoral ministry is, a, to, in my book is a face to face kind of thing. And, um, we figured out how to do it and we had to scramble when, um, when we first, uh, about a year ago, when we first, um, stopped meeting in the sanctuary, um, because our, our recording equipment, our cameras and all that were, you know, 15 years old. And, uh, we did record and put on our website, our, but it sounded like we were in a cave and there was a, you know, echo and all that. So we, we spent the money, we dove in really quickly and spent the money and, 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 I'm really proud of the product we we put out on streaming now. And we're back uh, worshiping. We're about half strength and it feels really good to be back again. That preaching to an empty sanctuary is, it, it takes a lot for me to get used to that. So that, that it is weird. I, I preached one time, another church in, I think back in July with, you know, there's four or five people in the room that were running the service and I'm preaching in the massive sanctuary to a camera on the wall. Right. And that's, that's weird. And the four or five are not necessarily paying any attention because they <laughs> no, they're not. And I'm talking to a microphone and it's not to them. So, you know, it, it's, it's really kind of disconcerting. I'm, I'm so glad we even have half strength in the, in the, in the sanctuary right now, because it just makes all the difference in the world to have even a handful of people out there um, that are listening and are there to worship and uh, responding and that kind of stuff. It makes preaching so different. So, yeah, and you mentioned the idea of getting vaccinated. And I got my second shot actually just about four days ago. And you know, the the day after Easter, uh, we're talking just the Friday after Easter. And it does feel like that, you know, we're in the season where we just celebrated Easter and you know, hope is on the horizon and and perhaps we're, you know, working our way out of this. It it does feel that way. And I, I Jan and I both, my wife and I both felt very it just felt very liberating. We talked on the way home. We were down in the center city to get our shot. And it just it, it just felt very liberating to get that shot and to know that we were, you know, uh, working our way beyond it. And um, obviously setting an example for people in our church. We we have a very mixed congregation and uh, a, a little bit worried. Some of the African-American community is 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 doubly hesitant. Um uh, some edges of it are because um, of the way in which they've been treated by the healthcare system in the past. And uh, I'm really grateful that um, an awful lot of our people are now into their second shots and that kind of thing. Good. I, I think it's really important that as a pastor that you're talking about this. Uh, I mean, actually, what the polling showing now is that it's the white evangelicals, those that look you know, like you and I, that are the most hesitant because of some of the conspiracy theories and, and disinformation. And, you know, It'll be hard to get the herd immunity if the people in our pews aren't getting vaccinated. So yeah. I think it's really important that pastors are, are setting that example like like you're doing. Well, you've mentioned, you've, you've alluded to your church. You've talked a bit about it, but I wanted to also introduce your church. You're at First Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Right. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this historic congregation. Yeah. Founded in uh, 1855 when uh, Kansas City had about 400 people. Wow. <laughs> That's a little hard to imagine. Yeah, isn't it? Right along the banks of the river, not not back over the, there, there was bluffs that, that, well, there still are, but they were even more serious bluffs. And uh, everybody was down kind of in the, in the elbow of the river there. And um, so today we are the oldest uh, freestanding Protestant church uh, still in existence, founded in Kansas City. There, 
uh, there's a couple of churches founded in Westport, which is now part of Kansas City, but when they were founded, they weren't. So we're, we're, we're it, and uh, we've been around a long, long time. In our history, we were the largest Protestant church in the city, uh, certainly not true anymore, but was at, at one point. And uh, our first pastor was um, Dr. Thomas, who was the, uh, at the time the um, president of William Jewell. Uh, he resigned to, to come over and help us start our church, and then he only lived about a year and uh, died uh, soon after that. Uh, we've actually had about, I think, maybe three of the pastors of our church have been presidents from William Jewell, so there is a little bit of a connection uh, there as well. Um, it's When we were down at uh, Linwood and Park, which is in the inner city, uh, that was our, our kind of big cathedral building, a couple thousand people seated and all that kind of thing. Um, we were largely a white congregation in an increasingly uh, African-American neighborhood. And we couldn't, uh, we couldn't break that. Um, we hired an associate pastor who was uh, African-American. They tried everything they could to, um, to meet the needs. In fact, my wife and I met at this church because we were hired to help in a neighborhood summer ministry the year before we were married. That's how we met. And um, somehow by moving out to Redbridge, uh, which is in the southern part of the city where we are now, um, uh, no one knows exactly how it happened. I, I think it's a God thing, but uh, somehow uh, African-Americans started joining. And then I've been here seven years. And in the seven years I've been here, um, about maybe 10 to 15, probably more like 15% of the congregation is foreign born. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's probably still a slight majority white, but it would only be slight, uh, quite a few African-Americans and then an increasing number of, uh, of immigrants, uh, foreign born, some citizens, some on their way and that kind of thing. So it's, it's an interesting mix. I've never been in a congregation as diverse as this one. And uh, it, it really is exciting. I, I enjoy uh, this kind of diversity. And I've, I've felt all through my ministry, I've worked for this, trying to get other churches, you know, to this place. I had nothing to do with this one getting that way, but um, it's my home church. So it really feels good to, um, to have, it, have it be this kind of a, what we call kind of a symbol of, of the beloved community. Well, I want to talk about your book that you've, written, uh, Galusha, Crisis and Courage in a Civil War Pastor. I have the copy here that, that you sent to me, and uh, it's a nice little book. And I want to, we'll talk about the book in a moment, but we should probably introduce the the key character, Galusha Anderson, a name that I had seen a couple of times in you know Missouri Baptist history, but really didn't know anything about until I started reading your book. So why don't you introduce us to this this character as well as you do this a little bit at the beginning of the book, why you became interested in him. Well, I, I became pastor of Second Baptist Church in St. Louis at the time, and uh, he was um, uh, the Civil War pastor. And uh, I was actually rummaging through the archives of the church, which I always do. I've always served, seems like always historic churches, at least a century old, if not older. That one was formed in the 1830s, so it, it's really old. And um, we uh, 
I, I, found, I came across this book that was written by Galusha Anderson. So Brian, you are the first person I have ever met who knew him or knew who he was or anything about him. So you, you are a special. I spent too much time going through historical studies myself. So I, I, I will go write an article and, you know, go and waste, you know, a few hours reading on interesting historical tidbits that turn out to have nothing to do with what I'm about to write about. So, well, I didn't know anything about him until I got there. Um, but he had a, a decided impact on the life of that church and its future. Um, so it, he, he went to Rochester Theological Seminary, which is where I went. And so I felt like we had that in common too. sort of uh, already had kind of an affinity toward him um, when I found his book. His book was a secular history of St. Louis during those Civil War years. And um, he tried his best to keep it objective and secular, but he, he didn't really succeed. And when I was reading the book the first time through, I said, my gosh, this thing's just packed with a lot of personal experiences, just kind of little tidbits, not, not pages of personal experiences. But it didn't seem like he could talk about the hospitals unless he talked about his experience in one of the hospitals or the slave pens unless he talked about his experience in one of those with one of those slave pens or the, or the all all those different kinds of things he he wrote it from his own perspective which isn't atypical of, of what pastors do often on our own narrative and our own story so um i i read it a second time and a third time and i find you know there is a lot of of, of personal information about a civil war pastor in his own words and i I had never read anything like that, out, you know, words out of out of the era. And uh, he wrote the book in 1908, but he was writing out of his experiences during the Civil War, 58 to 66 was when he was in St. Louis. Uh, he went on to have a phenomenal career. He was uh, one of the founding pre uh, presidents of the University of Chicago. He was president of Denison University. He was uh, on the faculty at Newton Theological Institute. He was came back to be on the faculty of the Divinity School of the University of Chicago. So he, he, he isn't an unimportant person, uh, but I don't think he's very widely known. He was also a, a spellbinding preacher from everything that I could tell and from I've, I've heard uh, written about him and, and a really fine pastor. So St. Louis was quite fortunate to have him. At the time, Second Baptist was one of the largest churches uh, west of Cincinnati, Baptist churches. And um, so it wasn't an inconsequential uh, call, but he, he went from rural, his first uh, uh, call was to Janesville, Wisconsin, which would be very serene and rural and very removed from the Civil War. And I think in coming down to St. Louis, I, I think that he and his wife were both keenly aware they were moving into um, the crucible of the Civil War. And the thing that I, I had just not really realized or paid much attention to, it's also true of Kansas City, but let's talk about St. Louis since that's where he was. Um, it was one of the few places in America, usually when you're at war with somebody, you don't live alongside them. Um, you know, you're we're here, we're fighting Iraq, you know, we don't, we're not, we're not together. But um, in this particular case, and the, with the uh, civil, civil war in St. Louis, Confederate and Union people lived side by side. They lived in the same neighborhood. They shopped in the same businesses. They uh, belonged to the same clubs and they certainly belonged to the same churches. So, um, you know, part of it is how do, how do you keep the peace when you're sending your sons off to kill their sons? 
but somehow in the city, uh, you're not having open conflict. There, there was a little um, insurrection stuff and around the edges of St. Louis, but not open warfare. And um, the way they kept it uh, going was that no one talked about it in public. Uh, in private, it was on, the only thing on everybody's minds was um, you know, what one side was doing to the other and that kind of thing, or what was happening on the battlefield. But um, basically, they 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 kind of had a, a, a contract, uh, a social contract, unspoken, that uh, no one would would speak of this publicly. And in this particular era, it's much more so than today. Pastors had a pretty prominent. Uh, social role in society, and their voices were were fairly widely heard. And with Galusha coming in and uh, being in the uh, one of the main primary churches in the city, he he automatically had um, a voice and and a role. And his pulpit was an important pulpit. Uh, and yet, uh, the first several years he was here, uh, he he also kept the contract, kept quiet, uh, would talk about it privately with people, but not publicly. And Second Baptist Church, I don't know what the percentages were. I've never heard that. It was substantially uh, mixed between Confederate and Union. It wasn't uh, one way more than the other, I don't think. The the deacons of the church were were for the Union, and I, I don't know about the pastors before him or after, but, well, after they would, but I don't know about before. But anyway, he, he, um, he pastored a lot of Confederate people. And um, they just kind of kept the lid on it by, you don't talk about it. And uh, that's, that's how it kept going. And it, and it worked well, uh, and the church was growing and doing well under his leadership. As I saw, he was a spellbinding preacher, so people appreciated that about him and a very attentive pastor. And um, it, it worked well until he finally, uh, out of his own conscience, felt like he could not keep quiet anymore. Right. And, and so let, let's set up the book and then I want to jump back into the story a little bit. So what you have done is take on the voice. Mm-hmm. So you, you've kind of gone through and taken those, those personal snippets and then kind of putting that together, fleshing it out, but writing as Galusha himself. Right. Which is an interesting approach. It makes it, it, it has the, it has the autobiography kind of feel to this book. Yeah, that's how he wrote, and so I just picked up. I thought, well, he's writing that way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna assume his role, and and um, embellish his stories. And I did have to create um, about eight of the chapters are are my own creation. Uh, as you read it at the very beginning, he had a, a terrible, terrible uh, tragedy happen to his family, and. Uh, we don't know that from his book at all. I know that from another source. And so all of that, I had to kind of, you couldn't ignore it because it's too big a part of his life, but I didn't have his, his words to that. So that's kind of what it, what it is. It's, it's, it's mostly my words, but, but quite a little bit, uh, all of it inspired by him and quite a little bit of it in his words too. You know, I don't want to give away too many things, but you've kind of started to set the scene a moment ago. He, he has this congregation, it's split, union supporting, Confederate supporting, and he decides to finally kind of break the silence in the community and actually speak out from the pulpit and takes the, the union side. I wonder if you could kind of set the stage of that moment for us, because it is a pretty big 
moment. It feels big in the book, and I, I think it obviously is a kind of a key moment for him in his ministry there in St. Louis. Yeah, and for the church and, and actually for the city too. Uh, well, he, he had a tradition, uh, I think it was just his personal style, that every Sunday he would pray for whoever was the president of the United States. Uh, when it was President Buchanan, he, every Sunday, no one objected, nobody had any issues. But when Lincoln got elected, he was a much more polarizing figure. And um, the uh, opposition party, which was the Democrats at that point, um, took took a great exception to his uh, praying for President Lincoln. Couldn't you forego that? And they sent several peace committees and uh, they used one of the uh, primary deacons who was from Kentucky, although he was a union supporter, to address their concerns. They tried several times to get him to stop. And um, he, he said, I just can't agree to stop praying for the president of the United States. I did it before. I'll do it after. It happens to be Lincoln right now. That's who I'm going to be praying for. And um, that, that was a great disappointment to the Confederate uh, people in the congregation, the supporters. But uh, finally, it just, it just worked on him so much. He just felt like he had to tell the truth. He had to speak to it. He was decidedly anti-slavery, grew up in Western New York. And um, there, of course, he didn't grow up with any livelihood depending on, on slave labor. Um, and so he was, he, he never, he didn't have much of a journey there. He was against it all the way from childhood all the way through. Um, and so he finally, on a Sunday evening, they, they had Sunday evening services, big ones. And um, he preached one Sunday morning and the, this deacon, who was his chief deacon from Kentucky said, you're, you weren't in your sermon this year. You, you lack feeling. It seemed like you were elsewhere. You were preaching here, but your heart was somewhere else. And he said, yeah, I just can't do this anymore. I, I have to I have to speak the truth. Uh, and I feel just led by the spirit that if I don't, I'm going to be uh, failing the gospel and failing my God, and I've got to do it. So that Sunday evening is when he preached St. Louis's first sermon, condemning slavery as an institution, north, south, out in the Western territories, everywhere, and uh, also condemning the, the Southern uh, Confederacy or the secession of the Southern states. And uh, it, man, it hit the fan. It, it had an immediate impact. There was no delay. Uh, within within a week, uh, the the main Confederate newspaper, which was a very strong newspaper in the city, uh, read a wrote an editorial about him being the devil incarnate or the devil himself. Uh, the next Sunday night, there was a mob attack on Second Baptist Church with a brick thrown through a window and a mob showing up at the back of the church. Uh, and um, his life was threatened many times, and um, uh, the the Confederate underground forces in St. Louis had him on a on a a, a list of people in in, in red ink. Uh, there was about fifteen people on that list who, if the Confederate took over uh, St. Louis, he would be hung from a lamppost along with the, his other compatriots. Uh, I think he might have been the only pastor on that on that list. So it it got serious. It got hot. It got heavy real fast. And um, half his congregation was gone. Uh, that that night was the last time he ever preached to Confederate supporters. They were gone. And uh, so Second Baptist was the first church in St. Louis to implode over um, the Civil War. And um, they 
they eventually came out of it stronger than before, but, but it, it was quite a journey. We're going to take a quick break from the conversation because I want to tell you about two new exciting things we have going at Word and Way. At wordandway.org, you can learn about both of these. First of all, we have a public witness. It's a new subscriber e-newsletter. It'll show up in your email box every Thursday morning with information and analysis to help you understand current issues with faith, culture, and politics. So I hope that you will check that out. A public witness new this month from Word and Way. And then we're also launching the Word and Way Book Club. And you can find information about that at wordandway.org as well. Each month we will have a book that will be chosen. We've already picked the June Conversation, Praying with Our Feet. I hope that you will check out the book, read it, and then sign up to join one of these small group conversations. You'll have an opportunity to discuss the book with others who have read it. And it really is going to be an interactive experience. So again, I hope that you will check out A Public Witness and the Word and Way Book Club, both at wordandway.org. And now back to this conversation. You're a pastor. You, you've had a lot of pastoral experience. And, you know, there is that, that tension that I'm sure that he was feeling and that pastors feel. There's the pastoral kind of side of, of caring for your congregation, every member of the flock. And then there is that prophetic side of which he eventually got to that breaking point where he, he had to, he had to move to that side, regardless of the consequences it would have on the other. So, I mean, as you've thought about him in that moment, and and I'm sure that you've thought about this then in your own ministry as a pastor, like how, how do you, how should pastors think about balancing those roles? And, and when is the time that, you know, it's time to do the break, even if half your congregation walks out the door I mean, hopefully, hopefully today, at least they're not uh, showing up with a mob and throwing bricks through your windows and putting you on a in red letter on a list to be, you know, to be lynched. But, you know, they might still call you the devil. I mean, I guess that might still happen. Yeah, they might, they might do that. Um, it's the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing about pastoral ministry. Um, people want you to speak the truth. They don't want you to be bought or owned by anyone they they want you know we practice freedom of the pulpit and um but but when you do uh, there's almost always a price to be paid and it's particularly hard for baptists and those of congregational based authority because you know if we had a bishop down in jefferson city could fly up here or drive up here or whatever and and tell people now calm down uh your pastor happens to be right i'm going to stand beside him he's not going anywhere and I don't want you to go anywhere. That that really gives um, preachers a much more freedom to 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 you know to speak the truth and to be prophetic. It's hard because um, I work for the members of First Baptist Church of Kansas City. Um, they can be done with me anytime they want to call a meeting. Uh, I'm out. And um, so with that kind of congregational based. Um, call, which I fully support, I'm not complaining about it, but it does make uh, prophetic preaching and uh, prophetic pastoral stands uh, much more challenging and difficult. And, um, and Galusha experienced that, that, that uh, he, he, he was just strung out when it first happened and felt like it was all his fault, that he had split his congregation, that his deacons had urged him not to. Uh, so it, it, 
those same feelings happen today to pastors and it, it probably doesn't happen quite at 50% or whatever percent it was of the congregation. But e even when a family leaves and you've taken a stand on some issue, whether it's the gay issue or what, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, it hurts. Um, it hurts because you have a relationship with those people. Uh, you've baptized their children and dedicated their infants and, done the funerals for members of their family or whatever, uh, hospital calls and things. And, and they're not, they're part of your extended spiritual family. And so for them to, you know, pack their bags and walk out the door. And usually when they go out, they don't go quietly. So, uh, you know, you, you have, you have a small P political problem, uh, inside the congregation. It, it's not easy. And, um, a number of pastors I know have had to, to leave uh, churches. And I know William Sloan Cawthon was asked once when he was at Riverside Church in New York, how, how do you get away with speaking so so strongly against the Vietnam War, which he did during his, his pastorate there? It was a liberal church, but still there were a lot of people who were divided over that issue. And, and he said, I couldn't have at the beginning. He said, but only after I prayed for them at their bedside, and was there with them through all the experiences of life. We figured out a way to walk together and I could still speak the truth. Um, and I, I, I think you don't want to come into a, a Baptist pastor and start the second Sunday uh, taking on something that is divisive in the congregation. It is, you won't last. Um, so you have to, you have to build the support. You have to build the relationships. You have to, um, think of them as your beloved community and, and you as their beloved pastor. And as you build that trust, uh, it works, but it didn't in Galusha's case there. You read the book. There is one example of a Confederate supporter who did come back into the church after he spoke, but that's out of probably hundreds. And, uh, it, it was a complete loss. Well, we will, we will try not to get you fired from this podcast. So we'll try to, <laughs> but you know, you know the other thing i thought was really interesting in, in the part of the story that you were just telling is you know this this practice of you know he's praying for the president and then the president changes and now suddenly it's, it's controversial and you know it, i think it, that maybe fits a little bit more of even our contemporary scene of how even something as simple as prayer can, can or a sermon, you know, even a reference that you didn't intend could be taken so political or so partisan, really. And there's a lot of landmines, I think, for pastors in that. And in fact, some of the research suggests that people actually have greater loyalty today to their party than to their church, which is not what it was four decades ago. And so I also think that's something that, you know, pastors have. I mean, in some ways, it may have some of that same kind of heavy in the air politics that was in St. Louis, you know, during the civil war is a border state. It feels like the whole country is a border state right now. Mm -hmm. It does. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things I didn't realize, try to find some, go down the street and find somebody that doesn't like Abe Lincoln. I mean, you, you're not going to find anybody. I mean, everybody thinks he's one of the greatest presidents. Uh, the same thing, Martin Luther King, go, go down the street and try to find somebody who thinks that Martin Luther King was subversive or wrong or whatever. And you're not going to find it because uh, both of them have taken on a, a role that's much bigger than than what was happening. What surprised me was that Lincoln was was viewed as so partisan and so controversial. And I, I, I was sitting there thinking, you guys crazy. He's one of the best presidents we've ever 
probably the best we've ever had. And you don't want him to be prayed for in the pulpit. But he was very divisive when he was, um, it was very divisive election. And when he uh, took over the presidency, he, he, he was viewed with a great deal of, uh, of animosity by people who didn't agree with him. So one of the other things I found interesting reading through the book was also as he's, as he's kind of dealing with the topic, he's also leaving the pulpit. So he's visiting places in St. Louis. He's becoming personally knowledgeable. He visits a slave pen downtown St. Louis. Uh, you know, some of these structures that, you know, we know where they were, but we kind of walk past them in St. Louis today and, and forget some of the history that was happening right here, you know, this spot. I also found that to be interesting as he is deliberately kind of making sure that he's not just preaching from the pulpit about the evil of slavery. He's also going to learn more about it, to confront it firsthand. And that, that those were also some interesting parts of the story. Yeah, I, I think one, there's a couple of times where he goes out into the countryside, out in what today would be St. Louis County probably, uh, but it was you know undeveloped and rural, rural and all plantations mostly. And, um, and, and he, he had, uh, people who were sort of, um, either Southern sympathizer or whatever would, would take him out to introduce him to somebody who had set his slaves free or had offered to employ his slaves, but they were no longer slaves. And so there, there were people trying to, um, help him see that it wasn't all black and white, that it wasn't all bad people versus good people. And he did have, he did get to know and have some people in his congregation who were, um, who were still sort of on the uh, one side or the other, but just barely. Um, he had some people who were slave owners who didn't want to be anymore, but didn't want to set their slaves free immediately. So um, it, it really, yeah, he, he, he went into it with an open mind. And I think people tried to help him see the complexity of the whole situation. It's not unlike uh, today, um, you know, immigration. What uh, all of our denominations, Baptists and otherwise, have been involved up to our earlobes in in helping uh, immigrants come into this country and get resettled. We've had um, them sponsored by churches, and I mean, the, the, one of the main, probably the main source of helping. Uh, immigrants uh, come into our country and get settled were churches, congregations, and denominations. And um, and yet now today we can't, you know, we that's subversive all of a sudden. And um, it, you know, it it's not. And you know, we Jesus was pretty clear, you know, welcome the stranger, and he himself was a, a immigrant in Egypt with his family when he was young and refugee. So um, you know it. it sometimes things get more complicated than, than they start out being. Well, what are, what are your hopes for people who pick up this book and read through it? Well, I'm a, I'm a fairly big supporter of Black Lives Matter. I, I, I think, um, I understand why people have problems with it, but it, you don't have to be very long with your eyes open to realize that Black Lives don't matter uh, in America to the same extent that white lives matter. And that's brown and black and all of that. But I mean, it, it, if you're a person of color, uh, you don't have the privilege that white people have. And that's in interfacing with police and all kinds of ways that in economic opportunity and, and so forth. Um, 
And I, I think Galusha is, is kind of a shining light from the Civil War to, to Baptists and, and other uh, pastors and Christians today that uh, we can't keep quiet, even though there is a price to pay. We, there is a truth that has to be spoken. Uh, in his day, it was that slavery is, is, is just wrong. And even though scripture never quite gets to that point of saying that, I think we have heard the progressive voice of God speaking over the last several thousand years and, and just don't have any doubt in, in our minds. You're not going to hear a lot of people arguing that, you know, we ought to reinstitute slavery or anything like that. Um, he, but, but of course, in that era, that, that was the issue. And the South uh, economic lifeblood depended upon the enslavement of a, of a group of people. And um, I, I just feel like that um, we're, we never have uh, gotten over uh, racism or gotten beyond it. It's still very much part of the fabric of our society. Uh, we all have to deal with it. It's all inside all of us. Anybody who says I, there's not a racist bone in my body is not in touch with their body uh, because uh, you just can't grow up in the United States without without having to deal with that and just kind of peel the layers off the onion, you realize that there's some ugly stuff inside each one of us and uh, some assumptions we make, some biases, some stereotypes and that kind of thing. Uh, we're, we're, you know, we're discovering it now with, with Asians. I have a very close Asian friend who's a, about my age, been a pastor all his life and he wasn't any good at math and everybody assumed because he was Asian that, you know, he'd be excel in math. He said, I can, I can add anything or divide anything. I didn't know. And, uh, and he had that stereotype thrust upon him that because he was Asian, uh, he could do, he could do math in a, you know, exceptionally genius way. Um, so, you know, we, we all have to, we all have to deal with that. And I, I think what I hope from the book is that people can read this and see that, um, while you still have to do it smartly and, 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 passionately and carefully. Uh, I'm not saying we all ought to try to divide our congregations tomorrow. That's not the answer. But uh, I, I do think that there is a prophetic truth that we still need to be speaking today. And if we do, we can stand on Galusha's shoulders. And um, it, our, our, hopefully our efforts won't be quite as costly as his. We'll find ourselves being on a uh, a list of people who ought to be killed and all that sort of thing, or bricks thrown through a window of our sanctuary or whatever. But um, I, I think we can stand on his shoulders because he, he, he is a clear clarion voice that there is a right and a wrong. And as, as followers of Jesus, we need to be following uh, his way, um, crossing all the boundaries that our society builds between men and women and, every kind of division there might be black and white and so forth um, that we need to be speaking the truth. And if we don't, if, if we play it safe, uh, I, as I said, I've been 49 years as a pastor. If, if I play it safe for 49 years, I, I have not lived up to the calling that Christ has, has been in my life. I, I've, I've been compromised and I've been, um, the question on the back of the book says, should a pastor stir the waters or keep the peace? And I think uh, too many of us probably err on the side of, of keeping the peace at all costs. And sometimes the cost is that we're not speaking the gospel truth. And um, when we do, I think if you know Galusha's story, um, you can stand on his shoulders and feel 
like somebody has, has gone before us. And for a Missouri Baptist like myself, it feels really good to have a, a Missouri model uh, who was uh, a pro prophet, a social prophet. I mean, we think of Martin Luther King and other people, but we have one right here in our own state, right here in our own midst, and, and it's Galusha Anderson. He's not the only one, but he's certainly an important one, and we don't know his story. Well, thank you, Stephen, for helping stir the waters with us uh, today. Thank you for the book, Galusha, Crisis and Courage in a Civil War Pastor. It's available pretty much wherever people want to buy their books. They can search for that. And we appreciate you writing the book and for joining us here on the program. Brian, thank you very much. I'm a, I'm a big supporter of what you do with Word and Way, and I really appreciate the, I, I look forward to every issue and the and the good stuff that you all are putting out these days. And you all are, are um, kind of doing what I'm, you all are standing on Galusha's shoulders because I can't imagine that everybody is supportive of all that you write and do, but it's very important and needed. So thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. If you head over to podcast.wordandway.org, you can find links to Stephen's new book, Galusha, Crisis and Courage in a Civil War Pastor. You should also check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review. It really does help more people to find the show. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine... If you're not a subscriber, I have a special deal for you. Get half off your first year. Just go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. And while you're at wordandway.org, don't forget to check out our new offerings, a public witness, and the book club. If you have any comments, feedback to give about this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>